Welcome to episode 181 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am the host, Laurel Bannock, and today my guest was Alan Aragon, who of course has been on this podcast quite a few times, as I mentioned when we get into the actual discussion. I say, of course, this is your first time or you're a recent listener to the podcast, then welcome, of course. I know you'll be in for a treat and uh, I encourage you to listen to our previous conversations over the years where we've got into all sorts of topics like uh, diet and body composition and protein and all sorts of stuff. It's always a good chat that I have with Alan and today was no exception. We talked about the topic of flexible dieting and uh, it's a really interesting area as I think you'll, you'll also find. We talk about why people are so confused about what to eat, the difference between sort of a rigid scientific perspective about something and how that may well be better translated into real world context with a degree of flexibility that takes into account individual needs and preferences for those that you're looking to apply your nutrition strategies to, but also the reality that there's a wide range of different factors that essentially boils down to there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to achieve a result. And compliance is really what matters. Enjoyment, longevity in the protocol, these sorts of things. Obviously, there are there are occasions where that's not as important. There are maybe more acute term goals where you find a different strategy. But ultimately, as you know, my approach is always about looking at these tools in the toolbox, the proverbial toolbox, understanding the the strengths and weaknesses are strategies and, and tackling those bodies of knowledge with a degree of critical thinking and context. So anyway, you're going to get into that. We will get into dichotomous thinking. We talk about discretionary calories. We do talk a lot of it, a lot about the scientific method and sort of issues of of how that is approached, how that is translated. And of course, differences of opinions will come up as has done in this conversation today. There are differences of opinions between experts, between leading practitioners and experts and so on, but it all has value. And that's why I enjoy doing these, these podcasts. Before you get to listen to the conversation I had with, with Alan on flexible dieting, please go to our website at www theiopn.com where you can access our other podcast episodes uh, including notes the book and the papers and so on that we talked about today whilst you're there check out our new totally new version of our the iopn diploma in sports nutrition it's the uh, the latest version of what we do very unique in its positioning in the educational market as a, an advanced level, postgraduate level program, but entirely focused on the practice of sport and exercise nutrition. So you can learn about that program at our website, but also all the other things that we're doing. And there's going to be many more things that we do in the near future. Very excited to say we've got a number of massive projects we're about to unleash upon you all. But let's not forget our software platform, SEMPRO, that is there to help support you in your work with your individual clients or group clients, teams, athletes, online group coaching, that sort of thing. That fits in very well, actually, with the approaches that we discussed today where individualization and, and coaching perhaps is more important 
than rigidly adhering to numbers and logging things in apps, ironically, since it's an app. Anyway, I hope you get as much out of this conversation all about flexible dieting with Alan Aragon as I did. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And I am very happy to bring back probably, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not, probably one of the most frequent guests I've had on this podcast, albeit it's been quite a few years since you were last here, Alan, but welcome back, Mr. Alan Aragon, your highness. Laurent, <laughs> Laurent, you know, correctly this time. Man, it is so freaking wonderful to be back. It's been so many years and it's really great to see you. Great to hear your voice, man. Yeah, well, you too, mate. I've known you for quite a long time and I've learned a lot from you over the years and I've even had the opportunity to collaborate with you as well. So that's always been a pleasure. But the the topic we're going to get into today is a particularly interesting one. It's not an area that I've spent so much, well, especially in the last 10 years, so much of my life in elite pro sport, that sort of thing. But I'm very interested in what's of interest to recreational athletes and bodybuilders and so on. And that's why we've delved into various topics over, over the years, although a lot of what we've done in the past is just as relevant to elite pro athletes as is today's topic on the basis of something I mentioned a lot, which is athletes, however wish to define what athlete is, they're still human beings and they're still issues with how people interpret and translate information and combine that with their desires in life and their ease of influence by the various things that exist in in our complex chaotic lives so anyway before i um i i extract as much as i can out of you alan i just wanted to preface this that folks that are listening might be able to tell that my voice is a bit weird and that's because i got covid and uh it's probably no big news because almost everyone's had COVID, but this is the first time I've ever had COVID. So it's only taken me almost three years, but there you go. Anyway, welcome back, Alan. Just for folks who who may be new to the podcast and haven't yet caught up with the awesome chats that I've I've had before with yourself and a few double acts with Brad Schoenfeld as well with yourself, maybe you could bring us up to date, sir, with what you're doing and uh, what you're currently up to. Right now, I... I'm doing pretty much exactly the same thing as I, I was doing several years back, which is just doing research collaborations and and then the other part is doing my my own research review publication and somehow fitting in working with a handful of real people. The handful of, of real people, the client's side of my career has shrank down significantly ever since the the research side, the research and education side really started blowing up. So with COVID dying down somewhat across the globe, the seminar and live speaking circuit has really lit up once again. And, and so that's an exciting thing. I'm trying to be a little bit more judicious about not filling up my calendar with too many things and, and, and going out of my mind, but it's a blessing to be able to be in in well pretty high demand. <laughs> so so I'm happy about that, man. Well, it's it's an honor, Alan. I'm uh, I feel privileged to to get you on here, and I'm sorry that it's another Zoom conversation. <laughs> I'm also fed <laughs> up. I've done so many presentations, spoken at webinars, and so on on Zoom. It's like, man, come on. Anyway, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because you know an important 
goal in this podcast is to is to access people that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to have these kinds of conversations with mm-hmm. and yet we can still share this with lots of people which in this case is a lot of sports nutritionists dietitians and researchers and you know and so on and these conversations aren't just meant to impact consumers of of this information it's also meant to impact the the producers of information people who are in the early stages of of research and and existing researchers you know it's all very well conducting research and we'll get into this in a minute because it's an interesting topic about why people think the way they do about certain topics and how that's impacted by knowledge that exists whether it's a journal or twitter or or wherever it still comes back to where this stuff originates from but obviously also how it's translated and that comes in many forms like papers podcasts and so on and books and funnily enough one of the reasons why I wanted to have this chat with you is because recently you had published your latest book on flexible dieting. Now, I know mm-hmm. you're very much into doing your peer-reviewed publications, and there's that heightened level of quality control that comes out with peer review and, and so on. But since I want to talk about this topic of flexible dieting because it's so interesting, why did you want to do a book? Because I know how much time this must have taken it's a huge project to bring out a book so what what led to you publishing this book on this topic well to be perfectly frank and and honest i was asked to do the book by the publisher (laughs) they they said hey and in conjunction with my friend brett Contreras, so he was friends with the publisher and he let me know that they they wanted me to write the book on flexible dieting and Brett essentially said, Alan, you have to do this because if you don't agree to do this, they're going to find one of your students to write the book on flexible dieting. And when, when I say one of my students, I'm talking about any one of the current crop of uh, evidence-based uh, figureheads because they basically learn their stuff from me. And so when Brett put it to me that way, I'm like, oh, well, crap, well, I have to write this book then. <laughs> <laughs> and so I I just took the opportunity to write an update of the evidence-based nutrition book that I've been needing to write for many many years. So even though the book is titled Flexible Dieting, that's really sort of a hook or a, a, a how do you call it these days? Well, it, a hook it's, it's kind of a yeah yeah a hook. It it's just a a clickbait. <laughs> it's a clickbait title because the book is about nutrition for improving body composition, so fat loss and muscle gain, as well as athletic performance, so strength and endurance. And there's a inevitably there's a there's discussions about health and stuff like that, right? kind of peppered throughout the book and how to put everything together. And so it's kind of like a, it's a mistitled book. I mean, people think they're going to get a book on how to count macros or something like that, but it's, it's really not, it's really everything that I'm interested in with respect to nutrition. So it's all non-clinical nutrition, basically. You know, Alan, I, I'm not for one minute going to suggest that you're a, uh, a master artist or your, or your works are a sort of Van Gogh or uh, Monet or Rembrandt, but I'm pretty sure that when people go to museums of 
modern art and national galleries of various sorts, they'll see a painting that's titled something and they'll wonder how on earth did that artist come up with that title? <laughs> and like you say, it's a hook, isn't it? It's a yeah. hook. And you're right. You know, when I read the book, a number of things struck me, one of which is you absolutely tackle that topic, except that it's so much more than that topic. And the other thing that really struck me was something that not everyone's actually that good at. And that is just generally the ability to communicate information. I'm quite interested about this because a lot of people, they love to get into science and start spouting out rocket science at different people, potentially misread the audience. To me, sometimes having a little bit of knowledge, sometimes I sort of think, well, they're trying to sound like they know what they're talking about, but I can tell they don't know what they're talking about. And yet there's plenty of people that they'll be like, wow, he's so intelligent. You know, he's got certain letters after his name and he he's saying all these big words, but he clearly doesn't get it. And I think it's the old adage, isn't it? If you can't explain <laughs> something complex to your grandmother, you, you just don't understand it. That is something I can tell you've put a lot of effort into. How have you managed to arrive at this point of communication? You know, Laurent, I was, I would say I was a writer and an artist before I was a scientist. And so I still marvel at how terrible a lot of researchers are at communicating. And so maybe I had an event. I actually considered becoming an English major when I was at my early years of college because I just love the the art of communicating properly and, and helping people understand stuff. And so I think that's something that is sorely lacking in the academic world, especially in the in, in areas like nutrition and exercise science. So when I write stuff, I really I really want it to be accessible and comprehensible by by the lay audience, actually. Like like for example, the ISSN position stand on diets and body composition, I was hoping that not just academics would read it. You know, I was hoping a lot of professionals would read it and possibly the, those professionals could even forward it to their clients. And so I just think it's, I think it's really important, you know, to broaden the, broaden the range of readers when we're trying to reach a, a bigger audience anyway. I think we really limit ourselves, I think, when we're speaking just to the academics and just to the people with, with all the degrees and, and all the knowledge, you know? Yeah, I do. I, I often find myself thinking about the term impact and what does that actually mean for those that are involved in publishing, particularly those that are sort of held into that slightly strange place within academic institutions where their entire career is based on publishing or perish, so to speak. But what does impact actually mean? They might use terms like impact factor and various other things, but is that truly impact? What you kind of hinted at this already, but what is impact to you? I, I think impact is creating the the impetus for people to actually take action after they've read or learned something. So if you present something to somebody that's what you believe is spectacularly written, and then they read it and go, wow, that was that was really something that really uh, you know, I got blinded by science. That's really great. But then they don't actually have any skills in their pocket that they can take with them and use on themselves or on their clients or their patients, I don't think you made an impact. And so even with speaking, even with lectures and stuff, my goal is to be able to deliver information and, and 
golden nuggets, but but mainly to just hand off some truly actionable skills that the audience can just go home and, and use like immediately. Just real world things that they can implement. And I think that to me, that's what, what impact is, is when you can get people to take action on things that enhance either their lives or their clients' lives. When people think, well, they talk about these things, you know, you, you, depending on who you're talking to, scientist or a member of the lay public or whatever, they might start to, somebody might start talking about terms like impact or a process of dissemination or a process of understanding or whatever, that's a sort of a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach. Which is really rather interesting, and there's a lot of stakeholders in this stuff. You know, you've you've obviously got scientists, and they come in varying standards. Obviously, you've got methods of dissemination, books, podcasts, whatever. You've obviously got the other side of it, which is lots of people who think they know what they're talking about. After all, we are blessed to being in a field where everyone feels they know something about nutrition and have an awful lot of perspectives. And actually, I think. To a certain extent, I've, I used to not think this way, but I do think we all have a right to have an opinion about stuff, obviously. However, I mean, you've addressed a section of this in your book about why people think the way they do about this stuff, which is kind of where I'm leaning with this. But like I said, you know, I've known you for nearly 10 years. It's sort of like, how, why are we still having these conversations so many years later? And the likes of yourself are still needing to put out work of such vast levels of effort and work and spend what must be most of your life disseminating knowledge through publications and podcasts and so on. Why are we still at this point, Alan? I think it's because, well, they're at certain levels and in different groups, there's different conversations there, but we can start at the very top at the ivory tower there because it's, this topic is so complex and we've actually not exhausted all of the the possibilities and covered all of the gray areas of knowledge yet. And so there's a lot of disagreement amongst the uh, the academics on maybe not the meat and potatoes of the stuff, but on some of the some of the potentially trivial stuff, on some of the small stuff. But the arguments are are pretty pretty passionate. And uh, an example I can give is uh even the protein conversation amongst I I, I like to bring up Stu Phillips in this because he and I, our conversation has devolved into to Twitter arguing <laughs> lately. <laughs> so for those of you who know, Stu Phillips, he's a legendary protein researcher. And I, I like to, I like to lovingly make fun of him for having taken a decade to, to agree that we, we need to have more than 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight to optimize things. And so it took him a decade to finally agree, okay, 1.6. So now, now we're, we're trying to get him to go from 1.6 to a little bit more. Let's, you know, there, there are some benefits above and beyond 1.6, but you know, when you look at the body of research, he's right. There's no consistent and compelling research existing that has looked at 1.6 as the lower protein comparator and pitted that directly against something higher, like 2.0, 2.2 in resistance training subjects. And, and so, gosh, the closest we've come is, well, there's Longland 
having compared 1.2 versus 2.4, but we want to know whether 1.6 is, is really that limit. And there's Pasiakos who compared the RDA with double the RDA with triple the RDA, but there wasn't a resistance training program in place. And of, and of course, you know, the uh, 1.6 was, was the superior, what, what seemed to be the plateau there. So that's as close as we've come to direct comparisons are those two, those two studies. And so therefore, and then we've got a bunch of meta-analyses showing this seemingly apparent plateau point of 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, beyond which there doesn't appear to be any further benefit in terms of uh, fat-free mass gains in resistance trainees. But we also have Joey Antonio's work, which in fact does show benefits of protein intakes beyond 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. But then once again, we don't have that direct comparator of 1.6 being the lower, lower protein arm that we're comparing directly. However, what we do have is the habitual intakes of the subjects being right around 2.0, right around 2.0, maybe a little bit above. And then when you crank it up to three-ish, 3.0 or so, and even a little bit beyond 3, 3.0 to let's say 3.2, 3.3. Some very interesting stuff happens with um, body recomposition, actually. And I just got a chance to see Joey talk about this in, in, a, in the, the conference this past weekend that I presented at. And not to degrees of statistical, in quotes, statistical significance, but recomposition nonetheless. And there has even been fat loss with fat-free mass maintenance when you go from 2.0-ish to the low threes. And yes, this is free living. This is free living research. It's not like Bray and colleagues where they had them in a metabolic ward and escalated the protein intakes and saw lean mass gains along with some fat mass gains and all that. But I think real world effects are ultimately what matter. <laughs> it's ultimately what counts. And Joey has been able to see this over and over again, just replicating these results with protein intakes as high as two to three grams per kilogram of body weight, showing recomposition, showing fat loss compared to lower protein intakes. And I don't think we can downplay or dismiss those benefits just because a bunch of meta-analyses on semi-athletes, recreational athletes, and non-athletes show this cutoff of 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. I don't. I think Stu is being very dismissive about that. I think he's even being dogmatic about that. And Brad gives Stu a little more grace. Brad's like, no, Alan Stewart is a, you know, he's a true evidence-based, he's true science. I said, I know he is. I know he is. But He's just being a little stubborn with this. And so <laughs> right? no, no, I know where you're going with this. Look, I'm a big fan of Stu. He's been on this podcast many times. Very good mate of the late, great Kev Tipton, who was my, uh, you know, our, our uh, right-hand man here for many past episodes. But I just want to bring this back to a, a perspective of the different, like this term evidence-based. I mean, I'm obsessed with it to the point that we're about to submit a paper all about this. So it's very topical. But you know, are, are you in the process about. of are you are you battling the peer reviewers on it? No, right no, now? no, no, no. Give... Literally about to submit the first 
thing in a few days. So uh, mm. oh, anyway, you know how that goes. So we'll see what happens, see when mm-hmm. that comes out. I might have shot myself in the foot because nobody, <laughs> they'll be like, hey, I thought you were going to bring out a paper. But we have. <laughs> but the reason why I'm mentioning this is because, and um, we get into this in what we're doing, is we use terms like evidence-based. And depending on what context you're in, as a researcher within a lab or in the chaotic environment of the real world, if you're not the average test participant who weighs a certain amount, averages out in a meta-analysis, you might be a six foot eight, 240-pound American football player or rugby player or something. There's a lot of differences there. And then depending on, you might be eating a steak but you might have wolfed it down in three seconds, vomited up later or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of different things that go on. You know, nobody nobody is sitting there eating 3.2 or 2.2 or 1.6 or 1.3 grams. But we all appear to, I've said this before. In fact, we probably talked about this years ago in one of our previous podcasts. We all appear to be speaking the same language, in this case, science or English. The reality is we're not. And that's why I, I, I get rather obsessed in, in podcasts where we try and define things before we get into a topic, because otherwise everyone's getting lost in translation. And that's where I think we're at with a lot of this. And whether it's Twitter arguments or, or whatever, if you don't give it enough space and you don't manage to contextualize where the conversation and where it's going to go, everything gets lost in translation. Of course, humans being humans, everyone gets offended or stressed or emotional or angry or defensive or territorial because it's their lab's research or it's that influencer's perspective. Again, bringing it back to your role as as somebody who's trying to communicate, I don't think the middle ground is the right term, but the appropriate middle ground on this to the consumer. How do you navigate all this? (laughs) Well, I have the, the luxury and you know, the convenience of just being in, mostly in that world. So my, I don't even have one whole foot in academia, you know, I've got like maybe one, one pinky toe or so. So I get a chance to see how people in the, the lay community communicate with each other and what their pain points and what their concerns are and what, what their interests are. And so it helps me maintain a good pulse on what what people's barriers and stumbling blocks and what their goals are and what they're trying to do to achieve it. And so I realize it doesn't necessarily help anybody when Stu and I are arguing over 1.6 or more. <laughs> I mean, it's an entertaining conversation and I I try to boil it down to, look, we're arguing over what comes down to a scoop of protein powder, or maybe a scoop and a half. And so you're willing to cut it off before having that extra scoop. I'm willing to have the athlete or have the client just take that extra scoop, you know? And and so that's kind of what it's boiling down to. And And I do think it's important for us to boil things down to brass tacks or where the rubber meets the road in terms of uh, application after, after we've talked about the theory. You know what's interesting, though, about this particular situation that you're referring to is the Mm -hmm. fact that experts can't agree. And that's a challenging place, isn't it? Where I've had numerous podcasts where I've had several experts to talk about a topic. And I'm thinking like mTOR, for example, I've had certain professors and they're uh, talking about it. And then I've had their 
PhD students come on and they've had difference of opinions. Now, that's all very well. And actually, it's okay to have differences of opinions. That's what drives this stuff forwards in terms of finding novel areas within gaps in the knowledge. That's what makes all this research novel. However, from a translational perspective, I mean, what we've got is sort of dogfights in the air <laughs> between two aircraft that are actually badged from the same you know, perspective. And maybe, yeah. maybe that's mm-hmm. a bit of a difficult place, isn't it? It is. It is. And I think it's really important to kind of boil it down to, okay, so what did we get out of this? Where are we at? And what can we what can we implement practice-wise to kind of reconcile this or rectify this this disagreement here? What can we actually do programming-wise? Along those lines, Hevia Lorraine and, and colleagues in 2021 did a did this the first ever omnivore versus vegan with a resistance training protein study. So we're we're looking at, we're asking the question. Can omnivores and vegans be on the same playing field as far as muscular size and strength gains if we get protein at 1.6? <laughs> and, and sure enough, there were no significant difference, differences between the groups in muscle size and strength gains at the end of 12 weeks. And this is the very first study that didn't merely just supplement either a plant protein or an animal protein post-workout or something like that. It was full-blown vegan group versus an omnivorous group. Same level of gains at the end of 12 weeks. And so my caveat and my criticism is that, okay, this is some very interesting information and it might be the strongest evidence existing thus far that once protein is at a certain level, it can indeed be entirely plant-based and show the same level of resistance training adaptations as animal-based protein, at least within a 12-week period. But, and then the, here comes the big but. These were untrained subjects. They were not exercise trained, not resistance trained subjects. So the training effect, the resistance training effect is always going to be much more robust than the protein effect. And so my criticism would be that well, they, were, they weren't trained. And, and so what we would need to do is run this experiment in resistance trained subjects and see if, see if we can still get these, these null results. And once again, Stu was like, no, I don't think it would be done. I just don't. I would rather say, well, let's not dig our heels in and, and set up our camps here. Let, let's, let's just see if we can run the experiment again. He's all, no, I doubt it. I don't think so. I think it's 1.6. That's it. Who cares if they're trained or untrained? We would need a hundred subjects to detect the difference. And so uh, that's it. 1.6. I'm like, I'm thinking, dude, Stu was thinking this exact same way with 1.2, like 10 years ago, man. So, and, and in the field and in, in practice, I, I always think of experiences that I might be able to compare with what we're seeing in, in research, you know, because I'm not out to try to legitimize what we see in the trenches, but when you see certain phenomena in the field and you see it consistently enough, and it doesn't necessarily pan out in academia, you have to wonder, well, what are the differences here in terms of study design or population used or the doses used or the time frame of the study? And so I, I've just seen time and time again, like, 
the the whole the whole issue of vegans versus omnivores people try to boil it down to what are the differences do they do vegans need more protein than omnivores so let's talk about vegan athletes for a second it's been my observation or at least my own caution that i place on myself to give vegans about 20% more protein than omnivores because i want them to be on the same playing field as far as well, at least the essential amino acids, if not just, you know, leucine by itself, but, or, or the rest of the branch change. I, I, I just want them to be on a level playing field, at least with that aspect of nutrition. But then, you know, <laughs> there's the argument that, well, there's Heva Lorraine and colleagues who cut it off at 1.6 and the vegans actually had a lower intake of essential amino acids compared to the omnivores. And they were still on the same playing, playing field. And I'm like, I bring it right back to, okay. Well, they both groups made newbie gains that could mask these actual treatment effects and, and that could mask the actual potential differences in the effects of these of these diets. And so, yeah, it, it, it's it's a rabbit hole that um, I've gone down with with various people and it's an unanswered question and it's gray area. And I'm totally fine with saying that. What I'm not fine is when people say, okay, this is a closed door. We don't need to investigate it any further. So I'm not cool with that because that's not really having a, a, a scientific spirit. That's almost like saying, all right, we know, we finally know. And so we can move on to something else. I don't, I don't think we're there yet. Well, you know, for me, you know, as a, a consumer on this, but with a consumer and observer, but also somebody who has a lot of interest in evidence-based practice. That is, I, I think, I think all of this has some value to me as a practitioner. That's independent of what you guys are going through, <laughs> and mm. and that's why I prefer the term evidence-informed practice. But either which way, where I'm going to steer this conversation is something that actually we've been talking about is, and that is this concept of sort of rigid versus flexible thinking or approaches to particular strategies or ideas when the understanding, you know, as is in this case, is that there are differences of opinions, differences of interpretations, and people will possibly feel that the doors are closed and many others feel that the door is yet to be closed. But of course the door can of course be reopened again. Mm -hmm. Let's not, let's not get stuck in that, in that revolving thing. But I want to talk about flexible dieting, but flexible, flexible thinking, flexible interpretations, flexible translations is a very big part of this when it comes to, for example, body composition, weight loss, et cetera. People get very stuck into this. Oh, it's calories in, calories out. You've got to get into an energy deficit. And it's all very sort of bland statements that come out of people that does not allow for the individual context of the situation or the differences of opinions from many great people that exist out there. But maybe you could take us back to this concept of, of sort of dichotomous thinking and sort of rigid issues and way, you know, what the value of being more flexible with that is. Yeah. The flexible dieting model, I mean, it had its birth in research done in the mid seventies, looking at comparing different types of restraint, not necessarily within the dietary context. And it wasn't until the 
1990s that restraint, uh, different styles of restraint were compared in, in the dietary context. So flexible dieting, technically, the, de the definition per the research is a cognitive style of dietary restraint. So there's flexible restraint and there's rigid restraint. So rigid dietary restraint, also called rigid dietary control, is characterized by a dichotomous view of foods and dieting. So foods are either good or bad. Dieting is like either a black or white, all or nothing type of endeavor. And so that was compared with a flexible, flexible dietary control or flexible dietary restraint that looked at foods in is kind of a relativistic light and looked at dieting as not an all or nothing thing. And there are shades of gray and there are, there is the possibility to not be perfect and still succeed on the diet. And so indeed over the, the next decade or two, there were several, several studies done, uh, most of them observational, but still nevertheless, consistently showing superior outcomes from flexible dietary approaches versus rigid dietary approaches in terms of not just mitigating the chances of exacerbating eating disorders, not, not just the, the psychological side of things, but also more favorable outcomes with respect to body weight control with flexible dieting versus rigid dieting. And then another decade later, like let's say the uh, the 2010s or so, the fitness community started synonymizing flexible dieting with macronutrient counting. That was an error. It, it's kind of a misnomer to call macro counting flexible dieting because flexible dieting, like I mentioned, is a cognitive style of, uh, of restraint. And so macro counting is simply a method of tracking that happens to be very micromanaging and very granular and sometimes very rigid in, in its nature. So that's something that I spent a, a, a certain part of the book trying to clear up that flexible dieting is not a single style of tracking or dieting. Macronutrient counting, or if it fits your macros type of model, that's under the umbrella of many, many dietary approaches. So Flexible dieting, in essence, would be would be the umbrella, and you have different styles. And flexible dieting would be flexibility of the approach that you take. So certain individuals are much more quantitative and oriented towards micromanaging their their intake. They're almost like dietary accountants, and they they actually enjoy that and they thrive on that, and they can maintain that that sort of. Uh, putting everything under a microscope <laughs> and that doesn't stress them out. And that's fine. You count your macros, use the app, use it your whole life if you want. However, there are other individuals on the other side of the spectrum for whom the idea of counting macronutrient grams just gives them anxiety and stresses them out. And they're like, screw this. I, I would rather just go paleo or Atkins or carnivore if it means not having to count macronutrient grams. And the whole idea behind flexible dieting is flexibility of the approach, depending on the proclivities of the individual and what they can adhere to best. 
And sometimes it's seasonal. Sometimes people will want to clamp down on their intake and put everything under a microscope to prepare for either a sporting event or a, a contest, while there are other seasons in the year where they, they're happy with just pulling back and just eyeballing everything. And so it is a whole flexible thing. So flexible dieting is not just flexibility of, for example, food choices, flexibility of food selection, flexibility of macronutrient composition, flexibility of hedonic approach. Uh, flexibility of tracking methods. It's it's not just that that those aspects of flexibility. It's actually flexibility of the dietary approach itself. So that that's real flexible dieting is flexibility of the approach, and flexible dieting allows different degrees of rigidity or inflexibility within that umbrella. So that that's what flexible dieting is. And so since individuals are so different, there's such a wide variation of people's tendencies and and abilities to adhere to different different approaches. Uh, there's no way that we can possibly say, okay, this way is best for everybody, or this way is best for everybody, or everybody needs to count portions. No, no, no. Everybody needs to intuitively eat. No, no, no. Everybody needs to count macros if they want to know what they're doing. That's not true. It's got to be individualized. And so that's why I spent a lot of time in the book talking about individualizing these things. There's a lot of things to individualize, even the, the, the little avenue of individualizing macronutrient composition. Some people actually love the keto model and actually do well on it. And so that's what they actually should do. Now, there's little nuances to that. You're not going to live the longest, healthiest life if all your fat is coming from, let's say, land animals <laughs> throughout your entire life. And it's all, a bunch of it is fried too. A bunch of it is spam and most of it's like processed meat. You're, you're not going to, you're not going to maximize your, your, your health span. If, if you choose to go keto on bacon and butter, <laughs> there's ways to do keto that'll make you live longer, but that that's another, another avenue. So yeah, individualization is a huge thing that sometimes takes a whole book to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Why it's a it's a key part of the evidence based model is to take into account the individual needs and preferences. You know, otherwise, uh, yeah, you're you're ignoring the, the 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 individual human, and that that's when the train goes off the rails frequently. I really like the way that you that you approach that that flexibility concept, and I guess the sort of another angle there, which you talk about in your book, right in chapter one, one of my favorite errors of your book actually was this concept of discretionary calories i mean ooh, 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 that's such mm. an exciting area <laughs> but actually it's an important one because you mentioned something a minute ago about calories in calories out which um you failed to mention you had something to do with i believe or at least you've had an impact on how it's uh how it's been interpreted but the but the, the 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 idea that calories can be discretionally i think really ties in well to that individualization that you've that you've mentioned why you know why was that a necessary part of that that chapter and, and what are your thoughts on this generally yeah so in the bigger picture of life we have just being responsible good good citizens and we do everything properly and we do everything right and then the concept of having a margin of having a little bit of fun and indulging in a little bit of rebellion, going outside of the lines, 
letting your hair down, as it were. I think that's important to sustaining anything, like whether it be a program or just a, a, a happy life, you know, have some dessert once in a while, have a certain amount of, uh, have a certain amount of indulgence and fun. I think that the same thing applies with the way that you approach diet. So yeah, discretionary calories is kind of the euphemism for junk, junk food. <laughs> um, so, so this, this concept was put forth by the American Dietetic Association in the early 1990s. And so then of course, now they're called the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And so discretionary calories, the foods that fell into that category were things like alcohol, dessert, and this was off the heels of the fat phobic 80s. So they even put in solid fats <laughs> into discretionary calories. And by the way, Laurent, there's still a raging debate about saturated fat and cholesterol and stuff like that, but mostly saturated fat. And even to this this day, which is an, an interesting fight that people are just killing each other over. So anyways, um, discretionary calories, the junk foods. It's a concept that you can have these foods in your diet and you can even eat them every day. But as long as you keep them to a low roar or keep them in quotes in moderation, then not only can you still have an overall healthy diet, but you could possibly adhere to your diet better in the long term if you knew that there's a little bit of fun in the diet. And so the discretionary calorie allotment observationally is roughly about 10 up to 20% of total calories. And as long as the 80 to 90% of your diet is coming from minimally refined, minimally processed, whole, whole type wholesome in quotes, clean type of foods, then you can still have a healthy diet. And this seems to work well for helping people stick to it versus saying, okay, this is the list of foods you're not allowed to ever have. And what happens when you, you present it like that, then folks tend to look at food, certain foods as forbidden fruit that they are not allowed to ever have. And so therefore, when they do have it, they binge on it because they figure, okay, I'm not ever allowed to have this. Chances are I'm not going to have this, this food for another six months if I can hold out that long. So therefore, I better eat this whole bag or I better eat this whole box of stuff because darn it, I'm not never going to have it again. <laughs> and so discretionary calories opens up the possibility that, hey, these foods, they don't contribute healthfully to the diet necessarily, other than just giving you a psychological break, which is important. So therefore, since they don't contribute a lot, or they can actually detract from the quality of your diet, we just keep them at a low roar. 10 to 20%. So let's say two to 400 or 250 to 500 calories, depending on, depending on who you are of literally whatever you want in the diet, choose whatever rotate different foods, have ice cream one day, have I uh, I don't know, some deep fried crap the other day. And I don't know, have a, couple, a glass of wine, a couple of glasses of wines the other day, or just rotate it out or just fit it into that discretionary allotment. And you can still have a healthy diet. And it's tough to get people to 
understand this concept because a lot of times they see examples in the media of people having in, an in quotes cheat day where they are killing themselves throughout the whole week. And then on one of the days of the week, they'd go absolutely crazy. One example that I like to give is, is Dwayne, the rock Johnson with his cheat days. He's in a pancake house with a stack of like six pancakes or something like that. And even though he calls it his cheat day, it's, that's a misnomer because that is a, a highly and carefully planned carb up basically <laughs> it's and and not only that he's calling it a cheat day and this sends the wrong message to to people out out there who think that oh the rock is breaking his plan for one day a week no that's actually in his plan and in the research literature this type of thing is called planned hedonic deviations and so that's the, his planned hedonic deviation method is a, a weekly model a one day a week model and that works for him. And it actually, it works for a lot of people too. So it doesn't have to be a daily planned hedonic deviation of 10 to 20% discretionary calories. It can be a weekly planned hedonic deviation where you're taking care of your 10 to 20% of your discretionary allotment. You're, you're taking care of that all in one day. And that's a viable model as well. And individualizing the hedonic allotment is another thing I talked about in the book because some people will be more of happier with the Dwayne Johnson type of model where it's just once a week, you just, you know, <laughs> have your stacks of pancakes or your bunch of Westernized sushi rolls. And, you know, you go off for that day while the rest of the week you're, you're being Spartan. And whereas other people will work a lot better with a little bit every day where each day they're having a small dessert or something along those lines. And so that's another way to individualize things. Yeah. The thing is, is there are a number of sort of rules of thumb, whether it's good old fashioned phraseologies all the way up to core rules of physics, like, you know, things, energy following the past of least resistance and all that sort of thing, which of course happens with how we think. It's just, it's, it, it overloads the circuits of thinking and it's far too much work to you know, to have to do all these other things when you think, right, I'm just going to eat less and uh, I'm just going to do a bit more exercise and I'm going to achieve my goals. But of course, it's never that simple because you're not factoring in, you know, the individual situations that we've, that we've been talking about here. But just going back to science and research and publications and how that informs our thinking and our, and our decisions that we make, you know, we must always be mindful that those are very rigid controlled environments but most importantly they're performed over incredibly short periods of time aren't they and i think mm -hmm. it's relatively it's relatively easy to say and it's and it's fairly easy to find people who 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 will acknowledge this it's not that difficult to lose weight it's not that difficult necessarily to to lose body fat it, what's difficult is keeping that process going isn't it mm -hmm. and is that for you, is that really where the the importance of this truly fits in? It's not a it's not about achieving something in the short term. This is about an actual meaningful long term outcome. Which, by the way, isn't just about body composition. It is about sanity and health and all those other things. Yes, it it definitely is. There are instances where where the short term is important, but in the bigger picture, it really is about the long term and. 
I think that as a general principle, it's okay to start out with, for example, plugging your macronutrients or, or your intake into an app and tracking your macronutrient grams, your calories, and all of that stuff. I think that can be a valuable, at least a valuable frame of awareness for you to know what what amount of calories maintains my body weight. Am I a 2000 calorie a day person or am I a 4000 calorie a day person? <laughs> I think it can be useful to know that. And it can also be useful to know that a palm size piece of meat is is not 100 grams of protein. It's it's more like 40, it's more like 50 depending on the size of the palm. I I think it's important to know that if somebody is trying to get their protein intake for the day and all they're having is a chicken breast at some point in the day and then maybe an egg (laughs) and a glass of milk. And if they're trying to hit, let's say, 100 grams of protein in the day, then, oh, uh, you missed that by quite a bit. I think think those skills are important. However, I think that eventually it's much more important for people to be able to just live without obsessing over the details of these things. I think it's important to know how to stay in the ballpark of, of your needs and maintain a reasonable balance of um, servings of food, both across the food groups and within the food groups in order to achieve a certain spectrum of uh, nutrient intake that would be conducive to long-term health. But yeah, the micromanagement of everything, only a small percent of people in the world who I, I personally know and have heard of actually put everything into an app every day of their lives and actually enjoy it. And there's even um, an argument that doing that for some people is actually detrimental. So people who are predisposed to disordered eating, plugging things into an app is is probably not a good idea in terms of, uh, you know, nurturing certain um, disordered eating behaviors versus trying to mitigate them. Yeah, well, I look. I completely agree with you. I, I, I think we've talked. I think we've talked about this before on our diets and body composition uh, podcast that we did. But one issue is that there's what people perceive as facts, you know, versus the reality within nutrition. Like, for example, you know, you 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 go to the supermarket and pick up at a, a you know an item of food, and on the back of it's a label that has numbers that tells you how many grams of protein is in that food and how many calories is in it. But the reality is, is that is only an estimate. <laughs> And that is not the reality. And then there are other complexities like, well, what happens when you cook it? Did you add something like an oil that adds calories? You know, how much of it do you actually digest and absorb and blah, blah, blah. It's just such a complicated area. So to have the precision of of all that data in something that you log relative to what actually happens in reality and how you, you know, put your entire life into micromanaging that is absolutely bonkers, I personally think. But like you say, I do know people where that works, possibly for the short term, but it does, you know. But again, that comes back to this concept of flexible dieting, flexible strategies, tools, you know, they all have a place. I think you just need to understand the strengths and limitations of these things and then and then help, you know, your your clients understand these things or help that you know, make that 
an allowance in how you construct your science projects, your research, and you know, and and so on, which is why these conversations are important because I feel that you know it helps unpack the information a bit and discuss the different perspectives, the different lenses that we have on these these things. And uh, you know, it's still an open book, isn't it? Yes. Listen, Alan, we could talk for hours as we as I know you could, but I I'm sort of acutely aware that I might drop dead in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> for my issues of COVID and I've taken up uh, my quota of, of your time, but there's just so many thought provoking things there. Um, you know, I, everyone should, should read the book. And, you know, I went and bought my own copy by the way, everyone, because I appreciate so it. And I didn't even get it. No, I, I, I bought my own copy because that's how I do these things, but it is very well worth a read as is all of Alan's publications and all our previous podcasts. So I'll link to those in the show notes. If people want to follow you, it's not like you're difficult to find, but uh, tell us tell us how people can stay abreast of you and your work. Sure. My website is alanaragon.com and you can find all of my stuff there. And right now my, my flexible dieting book came out a few months ago and I'm happy to say that it's doing really well in terms of the Amazon rankings and stuff. It, it was number one, actually, in, in the macrobiotic nutrition category, whatever the hell that is, man. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Somebody made it up. Macrobiotics. What? Okay. Yeah. So it's number one in that category. And it's also n- number one. It was number one for a while. I think it still is in punk music, in the <laughs> punk music category in Amazon. And if it's yeah. not up there in number one in punk, it means they finally categorized it correctly but i took a bunch of screenshots of it being number one in punk music for weeks and weeks and weeks well alan when we talked about impact <laughs> there's no greater impact than that is there well, look, listen, right, thank man. you for sharing your time with me it's always a pleasure and i look forward to our next chat on uh, we do science i'll tell you what I, I sometimes i call people a gentleman and a scholar and i only mean it like 75 percent. with you i mean it 120 percent Right, I'm, I'm, I'll transfer the money now. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. That's very kind. Got it, bro. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Thank you.